sermon passage this morning is Esther chapter 8, verse 3 through 10, verse 3, the end of the book, which Keith read for us earlier. And I've titled my sermon, War, Fight the Good Fight. War is a simple word, but has a lot of meaning. War means at least two groups are fighting against each other. It's used everywhere, and we can see that even my son, before I knew it, he was bringing his war soldiers to church this morning. And in our movies, many of them struggle with the concept of war and fighting so it should be no surprise to us that there is also spiritual warfare. In Esther this week, we find war, almost a civil war that the king ends up starting. The question behind all of Esther has been what the covenant between God and his people means when his people are scattered outside the promised land? To answer that question, we don't find prophets in the book of Esther. We don't find miracles. We don't find God speaking out of the clouds. Instead, we find ordinary lives. Ordinary people living in ordinary times. There are political rulers, advisors, revolutionaries, the power-hungry, the humble, and the poor. Ordinary people living out complex but no less ordinary lives. Two of the most important lessons about reading Esther is one, to read it, and two, to interpret it through the lens of the Bible that clearly shows who God is and how he works in the ordinary, even when he is not mentioned. As we have seen already, the book of Esther sets the sovereignty of God before our eyes over and over. He is sovereign over the dice cast into the lap to make decisions and fortunes. He is sovereign over the hearts of those who don't believe in him, turning even the heart of the king as he turns a stream wherever he wants. And he is sovereign working through his own people to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for every good work, to build them up into the maturity so that they are not tossed around to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes, as Ephesians 4 explains it. Esther explains the ordinary the ordinary, normal pattern of God to work in our everyday lives. As we have seen while preaching through Esther, the big idea of the book is that God's grace enables God's people to preserve 
and prosper God's kingdom. And this week, we will see how the war in the last three chapters teaches us God's ordinary way of preserving and prospering his kingdom. In one way, the war is over. Haman has been defeated. The primary of the, enem- the, primary enemy of the Jews is dead. There will be no more hatred because of who bows to him, no more decrees to kill entire nations of people. We actually know of a similar victory where Jesus defeated sin and death and hell by his death and resurrection. There remains no power in sin against the believer. Death has lost its sting. And eternal punishment in hell is gone for the believer. Though in one sense the enemy is defeated, there is much harm still determined against the covenant people of God. In Esther's day, the decree for the destruction of the Jews was still out there. Under the new covenant, Jesus defeated our enemies, but the war continues against sin, fear of death, and assurance of forgiveness. Indeed, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The big idea this week is that God won the war for us. Now we must fight the good fight. We will explore this part of the book in three sections. W, A, and R, the acronym WAR. In Esther, chapter 8 is the first section. Want the war. The W in our WAR acronym stands for want the war. The first time Esther needed the king to extend his scepter in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the king had to eventually notice her standing there And call her to hear her request. Now in chapter 8, after she has been involved and seen the reversals God has been working and bringing about, she is already boldly making her request, pleading for her people before the king can even extend his scepter. When the king did not or could not remove his previous decree, Esther wanted war. Esther and Mordecai wrote a second decree and sealed it with the same ring that sealed the first, confirming that there would be war. Much later, but in a similar way, when Jesus prayed for us in John 17, He prayed that we would be sanctified. He prayed for the war that we are involved in. He prayed that we would be made more like him through it. To not enter into this war is to constantly be defeated by sin and temptation, fear and doubt. We need to pray that we will fight 
that we will enter into the war. We need to want the war and not let those remaining enemies defeat us by convincing us that sin is more precious than Jesus or defeat us by suggesting that death should be feared or that by pushing us to doubt Jesus that we don't think he's enough to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what they are. Jesus commands us to watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to prepare for and pray for the war. Jesus tells us to pray, and he promises the Father will answer. But as we pray, why then do we not believe that God will answer our prayer? Why do, not, why do we not believe that he will conquer sin in and through us? Or why do we pray without confidence that the Father hears us or without patience to wait for his answer and trust his timing? Paul further tells us to test ourselves, to, to want the test in order to prove our faith, convictions, and growth. In Philippians 3, he gives a great example of that. And then in Ephesians 6, he tells us to take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And that brings us into our second section in Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Act in the war. The A in our war acronym stands for act in the war. The Jews defeat their enemies because of the decree sent to them. They are helped by God's sovereignty through others who fear Mordecai, the satraps, the nobles, the governors, and so on. The war goes so well on the first day that Esther is quick to request and want a second day of war in Susa. All told, there are 75,800 enemies of the Jews dead on the 15th of Adar. Jesus made promises about our continued victories against sin and death and hell. He promised to send the Holy Spirit who now lives in us that we might work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because he works in us. He promised to intercede for us. Jesus did. He promised that the Father would hear our prayers and answer them. He promised that his victory would strip the power of sin, that we might have victory in him. So how then do we fight? We know our enemies are not flesh and blood. Just because our enemies are not flesh and blood does not mean that they are not dangerous. They are more dangerous 
One of the lies we are tempted to believe is that just because we have spiritual enemies that they are less real or less dangerous or difficult than our real physical enemies. But spiritual warfare is more dangerous and more difficult. We must turn to our spiritual weaponry that God has given us. The New Testament is filled with armor, weapons, and strategies to fight against temptation, fear, and doubt. We don't have time to go through them all or really any of them in depth. So I'll mention a quick list here. You'll probably be best served by listening and just jotting down the ones that stick out to you. Fasting. One form of fasting is found in Esther, used as an aid to prayer that God might make Ahasuerus listen to her. Another is the fruit of the Spirit, found in Galatians 5. They don't sound like weapons of war, but these are the way that Jesus has taught us to fight. The list is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When is the last time that you prayed for these or made a point of practicing one of them? The fellowship of the saints is another. God commands us to gather together to help one another. Every war fought has military strategists, counselors to help others figure out how the war might be quick and powerful and successful. These are your fellow church members. Use them to learn to fight better. Paul lists further in Ephesians 6 the whole armor of God. The sword of the Spirit, prayer, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith to be used in all circumstances, the helmet of salvation. Each of them is a protection and or a weapon to help in the fight. But as I said, we don't have enough time to go through them. Consider that there are also strategies throughout the Bible. One of them is put off and put on. An example would be putting off the works of darkness, like greed or theft, and doing that by putting on the armor of light, the opposite of greed and theft, generosity and hard work. These are your strategies, and there are many more. And now a few helpful ways that apply these weapons to your life. Get enough sleep to wake up early. Your body needs food in the morning, just like your soul does. Wake up early enough to read your Bible. Meditate on what you have read to feed your soul. 
and pray through what you have read and thought about that it might change the way that you live that day. Write down answers to prayers that they might encourage your faith later when you are tempted to doubt your loving Father and His goodness. Pray for conversations with unbelievers and go out of your way to have them. Show love to others and make every opportunity to explain that the love, that that love can only come from Jesus and not from you. We must not only love, but explain our love. In the last section, Esther chapter 9, verse 20 through the end of the book, rejoice in the victories. The R in our war acronym stands for rejoice in the victories. Immediately after the victories in the various provinces, feasts are held. And again, after the second day of war in Susa, Queen Esther and Mordecai set out letters establishing a feast for all the, all the Jews. The new feast is then approved by all the Jews to be a perpetual feast from year to year named Purim. The feast reminded the Jews of the sovereignty of God, even over the dice or lots that Haman cast while attempting to kill all the Jews. The Jews are finally given the full and complete answer to their question. God does remember and does sovereignly act to preserve and prosper his covenant people even while they are sojourners and exiles. And so they celebrate. In like manner, Jesus has invited us to a great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When he returns, he will establish his kingdom on earth, and that will start the final feast, the celebration of Jesus' victory over all our enemies that saved us from sin and death and hell. How do we apply that to our lives today? While Jesus was on earth, he gave us the Lord's Supper. In it, we remember his body broken in our place and his blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. While we wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb, we take the Lord's Supper to proclaim His death until He comes, to show our confidence in His completed work to save sinners to eternal life. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Confirm our faith in the completed work of your Son, in his life, death, and resurrection, his reign and intercession for us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Equip us with your armor, your weapons, and your strategies. Change us by your Holy Spirit, 
to fight the good fight and finish the race. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.